a G, a D, and a P. Three letters, quite a lot of impact. Formally standing for gross domestic product, the sum value, and we'll get back to that word value in a second, of all goods and services produced in an economy, usually a nation state like the US, Great Britain, China, and so on. It's been the yardstick by which we've measured what a country's economic output basically is ever since World War II, and perhaps just a little before that. Our guest will give us a history lesson momentarily. But does it really deserve its pedestal? Well, not according to our guest. It might as well stand for gross dumb product or grossest dumb product, responsible for all manner of sins, ranging from the pillaging of a South Pacific island paradise to an instrument of oppression used by austerity-craven Northern Europeans to hammer poor, innocent little Greece. This is Bloomberg Benchmark. I'm Daniel Moss, Executive Editor for Global Economics in New York. And I'm Scott Landman, an Economics Editor with Bloomberg in Washington. Today, Lorenzo Fioramonti, a professor at the University of Pretoria in South Africa, is joining us. He's the author of The World After GDP, and before that, Gross Domestic Problem. He's calling for more than just taking down GDP. In the process, he's offering a revolution, not just in economics, but in how we determine our happiness, our place in life, the universe, and all that stuff. So, uh, Lorenzo, welcome to Benchmark. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, you're not actually in South Africa right now. Where are you and and what are you doing on Skype? I am connecting from Italy where I'm promoting the Italian edition of Gross Domestic Problem, my first book published in English in 2013. And I'll be soon traveling across Europe to promote the new book, The World After GDP, which you've just mentioned. And does your travel budget include lots of austerity? My travel budget includes a lot of meetings and meeting people and talking to communities, talking to students at universities, talking to small businesses and so on and so forth. I don't think that's austerity. That's actually a lot of fun, although it may not necessarily reflect in our GDP accounts. Well, Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen this month called GDP a noisy number, but your concerns go way beyond that. What is it that bothers you most? Well, GDP has become much more than a statistic. It's become the benchmark of success across the world for economies, for companies, for societies at large. And I wouldn't be too bothered if it was just a noisy number. What bothers me is the fact that it's a system of perverse incentives. It's, It's become basically a guideline for policymaking. And that's very problematic because our politicians will take certain decisions because they increase GDP and they want to be, you know, uh, you know, like graded on their GDP credentials and economic growth. And there's going to be a cascade effect, as we have seen in the past, you know, 80 years across society. Everybody's playing a game to increase GDP and economic growth as a result, even though when those decisions are very detrimental to society. I was teasing you about the austerity on your travel budget, but you make a serious point in your book, which is that GDP and projections of GDP can be used as a political bludgeon in policy debates. Absolutely. I mean, like, you know, I want to make this point very strong. If GDP was just a float number or imperfect number, I wouldn't have written two books about it. I believe it's basically 
a skeleton of what society really wants to achieve. And in a sense, you know, like it creates those incentives and rewards that, you know, make people take the wrong decisions. And this is happening every day. I mean, governments around the world uh, try whatever they can to increase GDP because this has a positive effect in terms of public image and probably may increase foreign direct investment and it pleases the World Bank and the IMF and all of that or the European Union if you're in Europe. Even though these decisions may lead to cutting social welfare, may lead to destroying the environment and, and creating social inequality, all the things that we prefer to care about when we talk about sustainable and equitable development and the SDGs. So basically we are in this schizophrenic situation in which we follow certain rules to please the GDP ideology, but at the same time we seem to recognize that those decisions are wrong and we should do differently. And yet we can't because when we try to do differently we get punished. So you mentioned Greece, I mean I don't think the Greek you know, the Greek population is completely, you know, like unguilty for, for what they've done. Uh, they're not completely um, irresponsible for that. But at the same time, punishing the society because it has decided to develop itself in a different way is also short-sighted because that is part of, you know, like a bigger process of creating creating economic interactions. And, and by doing that, you are destroying the future of Europe. And Greece is just the first step in a long, in a long journey. Now, let's go back in time for a second, take a step back. It's hard to believe in today's uh, world, but there once was a time when there was when there was no such thing as GDP just under 100 years ago. It actually grew out of the need to measure uh, the U.S. economy during the Great Depression, even helped the United States calibrate economic policy to win World War II. And now we're at a time when it's become a scorecard of economies against each other, a quarterly uh, yardstick of how each economy is doing, uh, a measure of a country's public image, as you just said. How did we get to this point from its origins? Well, initially, as you said, uh, GDP was invented as an attempt as an attempt to deal with the Great Depression, right? At the time, governments didn't really have any way, any reliable measurement of economic transactions in the market, and people were not being as, as excited about economic transactions anymore, so they needed a bit of a thermometer. And they came up with the best they could get, right? The, the, the team that invented GDP was not completely satisfied by what they had done, but they thought, you know, this is probably the best tool we can put together at this point in time. And, and that's how it started. It's a sum of market transactions. And I think it was pretty okay at the time in which the government really wanted, all it wanted was to basically reactivate flows of money in the economy. But you know very well that what is good in a time of crisis may not necessarily be good in a time of you know normalcy and normal economic activities. Uh, just like uh, you wouldn't give a patient who's healthy medicines necessarily. Medicines may be good if you're sick, but not if you're healthy. They can make you sick if you're healthy in many different ways. And, you know, it was then used as a tool to plan the Second World War. Once again, not necessarily a time of economic normality. Um, so it may be very useful to measure production, regardless of its utility, because you're building bombs and aircrafts and tanks, and all you need to know is how many you can build. The more you can build, the better. But this is very different in normal times. You know, in normal times, you want to make sure that you distinguish between the quantity of transactions and the quality of transactions. Not all transactions are actually strengthening our economies. If I get sick, GDP goes up because I have to use medicines and I have to go to the hospital and somebody has to be paid to look after me. But if I stay healthy, GDP doesn't go up. 
So in a sense, if we want GDP to grow, our policies have to be designed to make people sick. And uh, if I get stuck in, a tra in traffic, if I'm involved in a car accident, if I get killed, all these transactions increase GDP, create economic growth, but they do not necessarily contribute positively to our economic performance. Problem is that, interestingly, ever since the 1970s, the late 1970s, we have done the study. The study is in the book as well. We show that the so-called negative transactions that are counted in GDP far outweigh the positive transactions. So most of the growth of the 1980s and the 1990s was due uh, basically to pharmaceuticals, to accidents, to divorces, to military expenditure, all expenses that GDP counts as positive, but often they're not seen as positive by economists or by citizens at large. So we were celebrating an economic boom when it was in reality an economic disaster, but GDP gave us the wrong information and different policies, the wrong policies were decided upon because of that system of perverse incentives that I've mentioned. All right, well, let's go to the South Pacific and the island nation of Nauru. You begin your book there almost as a kind of morality tale. Now, you even link GDP to the island sinking, uh, literally, prospects of survival as well as diabetes, drought, and a bunch of other bad things. Talk about Nauru and why you think this illustrates your point. Uh, most authors start books with celebrating empires and big countries, and I've decided to do the opposite, celebrating one of the smallest states in, in, in our global economic community, and that's the island of Nauru, which is the third smallest state in the world after, the, um, after Monaco and the Vatican. So the story of Nauru is very important. Because um, Nara was, in the 1980s, uh, had the highest GDP per capita in the world. So, in many ways, it was the perfect example of what happens when you follow the GDP ideology blindly. So, this country invested massively in propping up economic growth by exploiting the, the mines of phosphates that the country had. It was a very small island, but basically had a lot of very good quality phosphates that was used as part of fertilizers and other agricultural products in many parts of the world, especially in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Long story short, they basically exploited it to the point of sitting with a huge environmental disaster that has been threatening agricultural production, has been threatening the population. With the money that they collected, because they had some money, most of the money fled to Australia New Zealand, where it was captured by banks, as it happens often with uh, fast GDP growth in many so-called developing countries. But some of the money stayed in the country, and what happened is that with that cash, the government decided to listen to many economic advisors and invested in vanity projects, as it happens in many countries, infrastructure that wasn't needed, and in importing a lot of food because agriculture locally had been damaged to the point of being useless, importing a lot of food that was very poor quality food. And guess what? From the environmental crisis, they moved on to a health crisis. They became the capital of the global capital of diabetes. Uh, with one of the largest, um, the highest uh, levels of obesity in the world and, 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 and some of the health conditions related to that. And nowadays, it's basically a failed economy, a failed state, and the only option left to Nairns is migrating to Australia and New Zealand to get, a better, to get a better life. So this is, in a nutshell, it's a concentrated metaphor of what seems to be happening to the entire planet. We have decided to embark on a production and consumption process that is ultimately destroying us. But we celebrate it as if this was 
the the beacon, the 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 you know like the, the the pinnacle of civilization, because GDP tells us that this is what development is all about, and it's giving us the wrong information. It should go. We should be you know like doing different. We should be doing differently. We should be distinguishing between transactions that we want, transactions we don't want, production that is useful, production that is not useful, consumption that is useful, and consumption that consumption that is not useful. And GDP doesn't do that, and by not doing that, it gives us a very very flawed. Um, piece of information, which then informs policy and they, you know, like has you know impacts across society. Well, let's go to South Africa, where you uh, spend most of your working year. Now, after immediately after the transition to democracy in the early '90s, there was a surge in, say, for example, foreign investment. GDP looked pretty good, but still, huge swathes of the population had their aspirations unmet. Now, has that influenced your thinking as well? of our GDP um, uh, curves, our GDP trends, and so on and so forth. After the end of apartheid, there was a sense that the country could have embarked on a social justice program. The idea was about that time had come for distribution of wealth because of apartheid, because of the enormous inequality the country had experienced. None of that happened. You know why? Because the government was told that the best way uh, to deal with such inequality wasn't about redistributing resources and promoting social welfare. It was about growing. It was about embarking on a mass, you know, mass scale economic growth, accelerated growth that would have increased the pie. Everybody would have enjoyed a bigger share, and everybody would have been happy. Now, not only didn't it happen? It didn't happen at all. I mean, like we had significant growth, but most of the growth was captured by those that controlled the economic leverages. So the rich became richer in many cases, and many poor people may have become slightly less poor, but still significantly worse off than, than, than the elite. And at the same time, you know, like the serious interventions in, in, in adjusting the, those economic differentials were not, were not taken. An example. For many years, the country delayed intervening in the HIV-AIDS pandemic. And the reason was that rather than spending money on healthcare and people's well-being, they should have spent money on infrastructure and development because that would have then created all the positive uh, effects that would have then propped up the economy and improved even the life of those living with HIV and AIDS. It was crazy. People were dying. Only when... In 2004, 2005, the country decided to really intervene in social welfare because it was too much. Uh, we experienced a significant decrease in mortality rates. Uh, HIV AIDS infections went down dramatically. And guess what? This happened at a time in which we had half the GDP growth of the previous decade. So this tells you that politicians that follow the GDP vision can take very wrong, extremely wrong decisions when it comes to the welfare of their people. Lorenzo, is that happening right now in the United States? We have a president here who has pledged to achieve 4% GDP growth, which is roughly double the pace that we've seen in recent years. Is the U.S. headed for this kind of uh, th these kinds of uh, difficulties if the Trump administration really pursues that kind of goal uh, as, as hard as, as maybe they're indicating? Well, I think that I think that there is a, a serious um, level of confusion in the United States at the moment. I mean, like um, in many ways, um, a lot of people are rightly upset uh, at at least three decades of economic policies in the U.S. that promoted um, um, a kind of economic development that increased inequality, that uh, made the working class worse off, 
um, that use globalization to put a lot of people out of work um, and create the kind of gaps that in many ways explain why somebody uh, like Donald Trump with an agenda of change, so to speak, um, won the elections. Now, what is being proposed, however, as a solution is more of the same. Rather than trying to tackle the uh, inequalities, the suffering, and the low level of well-being that many Americans experience. I mean, I still find it striking that America is number one in terms of GDP. And in terms of all the things that really matter, health, literacy, education, life expectancy, and so on and so forth, it's way beyond many countries that are much poorer in GDP terms. So I think America is a very, very good case. Lorenzo, there have been countless attempts in recent years by various commissions and bodies and so forth to create other kinds of indexes of a country's well-being. Uh, you know, pe many people have pointed out the problems, imperfections with focusing on GDP as the end-all, be-all of economic indicators. We can talk about this all we want. Is there any real chance of anything changing or are we just all tilting at windmills here? I think we're wasting our time with all these commissions. I think it's important to open the debate. That's what my book is supposed to do, to open the debate and have a public debate and only a debate among experts. Um, we do already have tools that help a great deal. As I said, um, if we were to use something as simple as the genuine progress indicator, which is nothing else than GDP, but distinguishing the bad and the good transactions, and, and that would be really useful because it would tell the government whether investing in certain areas makes sense. For instance, with, uh, with this kind of accounting, it's clear that many industries are not really producing anything valuable for society because the, the, the negative impacts outweigh the gains of these companies. And this includes the fossil fuel industry, the coal industry, mining and large distribution of food and so on and so forth. And I think in the US, some states, Maryland, Utah, Vermont, have already introduced some of these tools at the local level. Um, so there are tools that could be used tomorrow. The problem is that we need the political will to do so. And unless the GDP ideology is um, unmasked and unveiled as an ideology and people mobilize against it to, 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 to call for a different approach, we're never going to make significant headway here. And I think in my book, I show how this could be done. I show the fact that GDP is extremely obsolete to be able to account for an economy which is increasingly digital. I'm calling you via Skype now, and I'm not paying anything, and yet we're having a very useful conversation which is not adding anything to GDP. GDP would have been much happier 10, 15 years ago if I was to call you by the phone, because the call would have been very expensive, probably very low quality, and yet adding to the national accounts. So every time we use WhatsApp to communicate, every time we use Facebook to make, you know, to, to, to share information and so on and so forth, the Google Maps, which are for free, we're not adding to GDP, but actually we're strengthening the economy nevertheless. GDP is very anachronistic. It sees money flows as a sign of a good economy, but often money flows may indicate a very, very sick economy rather than a good one. And I think ultimately, my book shows that we could use this opportunity to have national conversations about what it means to be developed in the 21st century. If GDP is no longer what we want, then we can decide what we want together. And so maybe what's going to be decided by Americans or in a state in the U.S. may be different from what's going to be done next door. So if one country, Lorenzo, if one country tried to go it alone, and I don't mean a country like Nauru, I mean a sort of a medium-sized or even a large-sized country, said, right, we're ditching it. We're going to do something else. 
What are the risks if they acted alone, they would be crucified by markets and then forced to retreat? Absolutely. We believed exactly because of the power of GDP and its ideology and because it's used as a policy tool that would be crucified, it would be punished, which is the reason why we're publicly advocating, as I do in the book, for an alliance of countries to go together. Whether in Europe, whether around the world, we have also talked about an alliance of well-being economies, what we call the We Seven, countries that have done extremely well at building an alternative way of doing the economy that is beyond GDP. And these countries include New Zealand, Costa Rica, Sweden, very good examples of countries that have achieved high levels of well-being with a minor ecological footprint and very low inequality. If these countries were to go together and show to the rest of the world that change is possible, that we can do it collectively in collaboration, that would really help the entire world wake up. And there may be a positive ripple effect across society. A country shouldn't do this change on its own because GDP has an extremely significant impact on policy decisions. And they may be easily crucified. But going together as an alliance, regionally or globally, would make a big difference. And it is necessary if we want to achieve the sustainable development goals. We have a 2030 agenda, which has been ratified by the UN. And unless we change away from GDP, we're never going to get there. Well, look, this conversation could go on for a while, and I can tell you're only just getting started. We'll have to have you back on the show. Lorenzo, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. So, Dan, do you think we're ever going to get to a point where we're not focusing on GDP as our end-all, be-all economic indicator? Well, as Lorenzo was saying toward the end, it really can't be one or two nations, certainly one or two nations that don't have major economic heft, stepping out from the pack and saying, we're going to chart our own course with econometrics. Uh, They really would be killed. It really needs to be uh, one in, all in. And that's tough to see. Yeah, you'd really have to have something like the IMF uh, or similar body organizing a global conference where you know they'd actually move toward uh, an agreement on which statistics would, would would be highlighted because the IMF actually uses a country's uh, pr- uh, uh, production of GDP statistics as a measure of their uh, quality of development as a nation. So and any change to that would obviously be highly political. Something for the next Bretton Woods. For sure. All right. Well, Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg app, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to find your podcasts. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us and let us know what you thought of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Scott Landman. Dan, you're at Moss underscore Eco. And our guest is at at L-O-F-I-O-R-A-M-O-N-T-I, L-O Fioramonti. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Alec McCabe. Thanks for listening. See you next time.